trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio for December 4th. Uh, Dr. Cassandra Raphael has other clinical obligations today and cannot be in studio. And I myself had some, some work this morning. So I, you may notice that uh, song by D'Angelo has been one that we've done the intro before. I always like to have a fresh new intro um, when time allows. Um, but 
you know, we have a, a great and important um, show today. Last week, we covered the war in Sudan and had some words on Gaza while there was a temporary ceasefire, a temporary cessation of at least the worst of the armed violence um, in Gaza. I mean, anyone who's been following the news knows that that sort of seven-day pause in hostilities expired at the end of last week, um, and there is renewed violence in Gaza, and um, I think it was a UNICEF spokesperson said, uh, this is the worst bombardment of the war right now in South Gaza. They're seeing massive child civilian casualties and uh, have one final warning um, to save children of Gaza and our collective conscience. So that's why we wanted to, uh, I know it feels like that's a lot of what we've been covering for the last two months almost, um, is the the crisis in the Holy Land and in Gaza. Um, and so we're going to have on uh, a guest, Dr. Tarek Lubani, uh, who is an associate professor in Western Ontario, um, but also um, has uh, spent a lot of time in Palestine working on health care uh, in the region. Um, and, you know, I think anyone who's uh, been following, although it's it's very interesting how siloed our, our information is now, especially within the social media context, but there's a lot of firsthand video really chilling of really devastating injuries to children, fatal injuries, and including, I think, one which really resonated um, with people is during the, the cessation of violence, there was a news crew who got into the sort of locked and barricaded um, uh, pediatric neonatal ICU um, at Al Nasser Hospital in North Gaza and found, I think, five premature preemie babies that uh, when Israeli military had force evacuated the staff at the hospital, um, there had been no uh, been no um, arrangements made to to evacuate children that couldn't be taken off of the life support machines, and so they not only died abandoned in the beds, but basically rotted there for weeks while the situation didn't allow any any um, anyone to, to come and and look after them. And so, just I think emblematic of kind of the devastation uh, and the callousness that's going on right now. Um, but so we're going to get Dr. Lubani on the line. Forgive us. We're going to have a brief uh, musical interlude while we work out our technical difficulties and get Dr. Tarek Lubani online. Stay tuned. Trauma Code, and I have on the line, uh, I think from Ontario, Canada, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Tariq Lubani, 
Uh, Dr. Lubani, are you here? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you very well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, thank you for agreeing to come on. And, you know, we had on, wow, almost a month ago, um, I guess several times, Dr. Osaid Asir, um, a surgery resident in the United States from Gaza. And similarly, I'd been communicating with him for months, if not almost a year, about his work assessing surgical capacity in Gaza and his kind of ambition to build health um, capacity for the people of Gaza. And, and you're someone who, as well, I've been reaching out to with that same kind of, of uh, question about your work. And, of course, the um, obviously the situation right now is much more dire and much more acute that we finally get you um, on the air with us. So, um, you know, first of all, thank you for joining us. And, and just to give our audience a little bit of orientation, um, do you mind uh, – what what is the work that you've been doing? Why do you think I was trying to get you on the air even before these hostilities broke out in the last couple of months? Well, my main work that I've been doing um, up until now has been to try to build capacity within the medical system in Gaza. Now, I know when I say that, it sounds like you know something that I was going in to do, but actually the Palestinians have been work doing this really hard work for at least a decade. Um, what we see is that we see they are very interested in having a system of their own, a system that's not dependent on any factors from outside, a system that's not really dependent on anything else. So after the, the blockade first began in 2005, 2006, 2007, it kind of graded in as uh, the Palestinians took over Gaza and then as Hamas won the elections. So during that process, the Palestinians lost access, Palestinians living in Gaza, lost access to all medical care. What that meant before then, to kind of give you an idea of the situation, there was really no huge need to have a medical system that was completely built in Gaza. Gaza was fundamentally a third world country and treated as such. And right next door in Israel, were all of the finest medical accoutrements. And so, for example, if you were a, a dialysis patient, you wouldn't get treated in Gaza for your dialysis. You would cross the border, a checkpoint usually, go to Gaza, the end. When the, the blockade really took off, that was no longer possible, such that every dialysis patient pretty much was dead within a year. You know, the chronic kidney disease patients who needed any sort of advanced therapy were dead. Within two, three years, all of the um, uh, oncology patients were dead. And the Palestinians, of course, took a step back and were kind of like, whoa, we can't depend on anybody to provide care for Palestinians, and started to build up their own indigenous medical system. And that's what we see today when we're looking at how well the Palestinian system is performing. Obviously, it's not doing well, but that's not because of its lack of capability and performance. It's just because of the situation. So when we see that, that's because of the hard work of so many people to try to improve the infrastructure. That means having in-house cleaning of water. That means having solar panels everywhere. That means having as many indigenous sort of devices as they can, they can manufacture on site. Um, that's why the doctors are doing so well, because that also meant training in-house. That meant not depending on sending people out of Gaza, which was nearly impossible most of that time. Not depending on people coming into Gaza. 
And then the, the last thing is sort of trying to figure out the consumables, the things that you and I use like gauze and, and so on in our day-to-day -day practice. Well, they had to figure out both how to minimize their use and extend it, of course, reuse it, you know, like they reuse tourniquets, for example, and how to make it so that the, the system could take in the blockade and not be completely destroyed by it. Yeah, wow. Um, that's quite a history lesson. And, and I know from doing a little bit of, you know, research into your background, um, you, you got a little bit of fame in, in sort of developing a very um, cheap but useful stethoscope um, that could be 3D printed and distributed in Gaza. Um, right, correct me if I'm wrong. Anything else that you want to talk about your work building capacity in Gaza in the past that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, Simon, the, the reality is that we are part of an overall initiative to, to basically make the system self-sufficient. So imagine, for example, you're a trauma surgeon, as I understand it, correct? Right. So imagine, like, you're a trauma surgeon, and there are patients all around you who are getting shot in their limbs, like what happened in the Great March of Return. I mean, wouldn't you be happy to have some tourniquets? But the Israelis consider the tourniquets to be basically a weapon of war. They consider it to be a combat weapon. And so they don't allow them in, at least not with any ease. It turns out during this war we discovered a few here and there in stores, but really all the tourniquets that you see used or that you've ever seen used in Gaza have basically been made in Gaza, 3D printed. Uh, some of them now we're moving to injection molding. So the, the projects that I'm most proud of are all of the ones that the Palestinians have, have led. Obviously, you know, you can kind of hear from my accent, even though English isn't my mother tongue, that I speak well. I have a first world academic post. I'm trained in Canada. And so I bring certain kinds of credibility to these projects. And I also bring the ability to research in a first world top tier university these devices so that we can make sure that Palestinians aren't just receiving good enough care, but the same care my patients in Canada would receive. Because mm. that was actually, you know, when I went over there, I had that fully like white savior type of thinking of anything is better than nothing. And my, so I think, I think I'd showed up with some expired medical materials, you know, some um, stuff for central lines that people had given me because they had expired. And the Palestinians were like, well, would you use this on your patients in Canada? Of course not. Of course not. Can you imagine? using expired material that you knew was expired in, in, your, uh, in your trauma bay. And so they said, well, then why do you think it's good enough for the people of Palestine? And it really got me thinking that they do deserve the best. And we have to be creative and we have to be resourceful, but we can make sure we have the best mm -hmm. there. So I think it's not necessarily that I'm the proudest of the stethoscope or the proudest of the tourniquet. So I'm the proudest of participating in that sort of attempt to gain self-sufficiency while maintaining this ridiculously high standard. And um, I, I want to talk more about uh, the Palestinian physicians who have been building that capacity because unfortunately I've learned many of their names and their obituaries in the last several weeks. Um, but, but before I moved on, you mentioned the... the um, I think that the March of Return, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that was in 2018, um, and that there was uh, a, the, the sort of Israeli border guards were shooting at extremities of peaceful protesters. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were also shot at that time while you were present, and there was um, at least one, if not several, medics that were trying to help people who were also shot by snipers. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, yeah. So the Great March of Return 
you know, I'm, I'm going to place it into a particular context, right? Because a lot of people say to me, especially around October 7th, you know, October 7th was horrible. And, and I think we all, we can all easily see that even, even though none of us would, and, and I assume the listeners to your show, none of us endorse the genocide that came after of Palestinians. And so I, I think when people talk about it and when people ask me about it very often, especially people who don't know the history, they say, well, Palestinians should try peaceful, nonviolent resistance. Okay, so I say to them, what if Palestinians showed up unarmed, hands up, to, uh, to the border area every week for two years, asking for their rights, demanding their dignity, wanting their land back. Like, I'm not even talking about the land inside, you know, uh, Israel. I'm talking about the land up to the Iron Wall, up to the border of Gaza, because about 200 meters of that land was considered a no-go zone where people would be shot simply for approaching. And of course, there'd be routine operations to bulldoze that entire area. So we're talking about them reclaiming the prison yard, not even trying a prison break. And, and what, when I say that to people, they're shocked. So let's step back into 2018. In March, the end of March 2018, uh, thousands of Palestinians went and set up a peaceful protest on the border. Now, um, is it peaceful to throw some rocks at an army that's 100 meters away? You know, I think most of us would probably agree that that falls well within the kind of peaceful resistance axis. Um, and that's what some people say, well, no, they threw rocks. That's not peaceful. I mean, whatever, splitting hairs. The simple fact is Palestinians in 2018 had guns, lots of guns. They had rockets, lots of rockets. And they brought none of that. They brought none of that. Instead, they came peacefully. And they did, they, you know, it was led by artists, uh, by, I believe, uh, his first name is Ahmed Ahmed Abu Artuma, this uh, really well-renowned poet, um, and other artists. They set up festivals, really up until you got to the no-go zones. It felt like a circus. There were balloons, there were people in theatrical clothing, there were plays, there was all of that. And... What I saw as a doctor, I was there for quite a few of these protests. And every week, every week on Friday, we would go and it would be the same thing. People would be there protesting, yelling, screaming, carrying flags, you know, hands up, running, so on. And they'd be shot one by one by one. Over the span of those two years, there were 22,000 injuries, 6,000 live fire gunshots. 200, and I don't remember this exact number, but it's in this vicinity, about 200 people killed by Israeli snipers. So, of course, you know, when you're in a trauma service, you rarely have the luxury of knowing exactly when and exactly where your patients will be created. And so what we did was we set up trauma stabilization points uh, at the major protest sites, or five major protest sites, and we also had medical teams so that when somebody would be shot, we would be able to get to them almost immediately and evacuate them. So think about sort of the mortality rates that you see from extremity gunshot wounds. The American Army reports around 10-15%, that's about right. We had 0.2% mortality rate because 
we kind I mean we had the advantage of knowing when and where and we were able to implement the stop the bleed campaign almost all the injuries were were upper lower extremity 85% I think it is again don't quote me on it but there's a world health organization report that has exact numbers um, and then the the rest were distributed thorax neck head etc wow. so when when I was there um, that's exactly what I saw I would stand wait while people protested until the Israelis picked somebody off you'd hear the gunshot and you'd run for them that's the context in which I was shot I was literally fully in my scrubs medical gear um, huddled over with the medical team away from the protesters and boom I hear a gunshot wound to one side of me you, you hear the bullet before you hear the gunshot and I could tell that something had happened I was sort of looking up at the sky and felt a terrible searing pain in my leg and I knew I was shot this story and I'm happy to sort of walk you through the details of what happens when you're shot in that scenario but mm -hmm. very small example uh, Simon I do you do you like uh, trauma bay care or do you only of sort of uh, do okay so imagine a patient comes in with gunshot wound that goes you know from left to right through um, through basically uh, just sort of uh, distal to, to the knee on the left leg and just an, in the posterior side and then just anterior on the right side. So imagine that person. What would you give them for, for analgesia? Yeah. Because what I was offered was Advil. There, there was no analgesia to be offered. Not, not just for me, for anybody. And they knew I was a doctor. They wanted to give me the very best. But it just wasn't available. And I, of course, said, that's okay, thank you very much save the Advil for somebody else because I knew that even that was in short supply but on that day 1,700 people were shot May 14th 2018 I believe something like 60 of them were killed including my good friend and colleague Musa Hassanin, who was a paramedic doing his job as a paramedic when he was shot in the chest and ultimately died of attention pneumothorax wow. and you know that um, one reason to bring up that story um, you know in addition to, to what you say about how it um, captures how a nonviolent protest movement is is met in Gaza um, is also uh, there was sort of a um, a, a foretelling uh, foreshadowing there right the targeting of the medical um, the medical response um, is a lot of what we've I've seen you know we, we mentioned um, you brought up briefly, you know, the, the, the mass murder on October 7th in southern Israel, killed 1,200 and took 200 hostages. Um, but we know since then there's been really a systematic campaign by the most powerful and one of the most powerful and well-equipped militaries in the world, particularly from the air, but also from um, tanks and from uh, artillery and, and things um, that has really taken a devastating toll on civilians, particularly on children. I think more than half of the population of Gaza is children. Um, and also has really systematically uh, targeted and destroyed the healthcare infrastructure and healthcare workers in, um, in Gaza. And, and, you know, you use the word genocide, and I think there are probably listeners who feel like that's not fair or that's controversial. Um, on our last show, I, I had kind of a monologue where uh, I... I um, really thoughtfully analyzed and justified why I think that genocide is the correct term, particularly the systematic targeting of children, um, the systematic targeting of healthcare workers and healthcare infrastructure. 
Um, and, and including, as, as Israeli historians have pointed out in, in talking about the, the comments in Hebrew of the civilian and military leadership, um, the comments of what the goals are of those who are in a position of authority to, um, to command and control the, the military. Um, and, and I think it, it's worth, any, first of all, anything else you want to add to, to how I just framed what's been going on in Gaza since October 7th? I think for me, uh, I've never used the word genocide until this particular conflict. You know, I'm very, very mindful of my language, especially as a medical professional. And I, I expect that you're so much the same, Simon. And really, for me, the, the big thing, like I kind of had my, my colleagues dying one by one. And I thought, wow, that's really terrible. You know, so-and-so has, has been killed. So-and-so has been killed. And there came to be a point where I had to zoom out a little bit, think like, oh my God, it's not just that, you know, this person or that person has been killed. It's that an entire generation of medical leadership has now been killed. It's that, and, and who was left of them, who was left in Shifa, let's say, were arrested. It's not the reason I think why, and I, again, I'm not going to, you know, kind of redo your conversation, uh, your monologue from last week, but the reason why I think it applies is because what I'm seeing this time more than any other time is a systematic dismantlement of that society. Okay, so Shifa supposedly had this bunker. No evidence, you know, I think uh, we can all agree, even um, the most pro-Israeli among us, that there was definitely not a command bunker down there. And, and if I can interrupt you, Tarek, because I think it's worth stepping back even before that. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ghassan Abu Seta, who's a uh, British-Palestinian uh, plastic and reconstructive surgeon who was in working in Gaza when the hostilities broke out, was at Al-Ali Hospital um, in uh, mid-October when there was... Um, Right, an explosion at the hospital that killed hundreds, um, and, and we played his his um, his uh, press conference from the parking lot, right, surrounded by bodies, um, where he said, you know, this was a deliberate attack on a hospital. It, it's not the first one. It's a war crime, and unless we stand united against it, it's going to continue. Um, and um, the Israeli military, I think, the next day had their own press conference and were somewhat convincing in arguing that. Um, Oh, this was probably a Palestinian rocket and presented some information and, and really kind of took, I think, a lot of the force out of Abu Sitta's press conference. Um, but that was really that that attack at the hospital is really only the beginning. Right. Since then, as you mentioned, there was uh, no doubt about whose munitions were hitting Al-Shifa Hospital. There was attacks on pediatric hospital Al-Riansi. You know, any hospital you can think of in North Gaza, correct me if I'm wrong, you may know better than me. Um, was systematically attacked, including their solar panels, their oxygen supplies, right? Not not attacking underground bunkers, but dismantling, as you said, the entire healthcare infrastructure, particularly in North Gaza. But we're seeing that now, right, is expanding to the whole of the country. Would you agree? Yeah, of course. And you know, uh, just to to sort of add more context to the Al Ahli um, conversation. Firstly, that was the second attack on Al-Ahli within the span of two to three days. Um, I forget if it was two days, three days. But Al-Ahli was hit with a warning shot. And it was very, very clear that it was a warning shot. You know, they, they had a couple of missiles and destroyed a few rooms. 
And the Israelis had been warning them, told them that the, those were their missiles in the subsequent warning telephone calls. So you might have been a little bit confused um, or rather placated by the Israeli explanation. I wasn't. And in fact, I wrote about it at the time. And that's because, yes, the, there is a fog of war. Yes, there is an incompleteness of information. However, and maybe I'm more comfortable with this coming from the emergency world. I assume many of your listeners are medical. And so I'll reference, you know, that world a little bit more. But when, when something, when a behavior is repeated time and time and time again, hmm. you kind of assume that, that that behavior is happening in the absence of very credible evidence against. And so when the Israelis presented the weakest, flimsiest sort of excuses for the why not, I mean, it was pretty clear to most of us who've been watching Israel for a while that Israel, when it gets caught in these really, really embarrassing situations, lies. They lied about Shirin of Akhla. They, they lied. I mean, I don't even need to go that far. They lied about me. They said that, firstly, you know, that I wasn't shot at all. Um, just like uh, it happened not too long ago where a spokesperson was saying, you know, I don't believe that there were any victims at all in, I forget which bombing. And then secondly, they... Oh yeah, the, they said that about the uh, dead babies at uh, at Nasser Hospital, Nasser slash Rantisi. So, um, you know, they said, well, there were no babies at all. And when I was shot, they said there was no gunshot at all. And then when it became really obvious, I literally was in front of members of parliament lifting my pant legs to show them the still healing wounds. I had to, and you'll recognize how stupid and dangerous this is, I sewed the, the bullet wounds shut because I wasn't sure what was going to come in the time after this particular episode. So, you know, I, they were still basically, um, basically leaking by the time I got back to Canada and I showed it to some of those members of parliament. And from there, the narrative changed. Oh, well, he was shot by Palestinians, which is crazy. I mean, it was crazy on the face of it. It was crazy for anybody who was there. It's just, it was a bald-faced lie. And the Israelis have lied multiple times, especially about the involvement of, of Palestinian uh, resistance fighters, groups, etc., in these hospitals. And I've been there, so it's not like I need to take it secondhand. I, I know firsthand. When Al-Ahli happened, I knew whose munitions it was. I didn't know which munitions, you know, okay, it could have been this munition, that munition. I didn't know why they did it. You know, maybe they did it for this reason or that reason. I knew they did it. Hmm. And... And the, the entire justification, as you recall, some of the defenders of Al-Ahli, uh, of the Israelis at Al-Ahli, why would we do that? We wouldn't bomb hospitals. That's, that's barbaric. Now, just like you said, nobody doubts whose munitions have utterly destroyed those hospitals. Right. The death count at Al-Ahli pales in comparison to the death counts at Shifa, at Nasr. And that's not even to, to speak of the indirect death count of not being able to treat these patients. And there was a way that that's offered a sort of inoculation to, to um, confuse people or to give those who are inclined to support um, this military, uh, uh, you know, objective, give them uh, something to say to defend the, 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 um, the assault on Gaza. And, and I think, you know, it's worth kind of, of summarizing where we are now. For those who are just listening, you're listening to Trauma Code on WBAI. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon, and I'm on the line with Dr. Tariq Lubani, uh, who has a lot of experience uh, in Gaza and kind of uh, talking about the situation uh, of the healthcare system and healthcare workers in Gaza. And we know that 
At least 15,500 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed uh, since uh, October, um, at least 6,000 of them children. But we also know that there are almost certainly thousands uncounted in the rubble um, who are either dead or dying. Um, other people have estimated that the number killed is up above 20,000, and that was before the uh, uh, the bombing of Gaza restarted over the weekend, um, likely more than 8,000 children killed. Um, and a large number of those dead, right, are not necessarily adolescents, but also infants, toddlers, babies, young children. I know there's been a whole series of, um, you know, traumatic arrests of pregnant women, women and um, uh, resuscitative cesarean, right, cutting open um, dying women to try to save them and their babies. Um, and, and really just so pervasive. And, and also I think it, it's really important to say that a large number of people are being killed with their entire families. And in fact, you know, we've said this last time, and I think it's worth saying again that there's been a new medical acronym coined, right, WCNSF, um, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, um, because they got tired of writing over and over again that, that phrase and needed a shorthand in the medical charts and the medical records. Um, and, uh, you know, among all of that, we mentioned how they've been cutting off water, electricity, attacking oxygen and, and solar panels uh, of the um, of the hospitals. And it's also worth mentioning that there's been, a, a, it seems systematic, although maybe it's just everybody's being killed. So it also includes, I think the number is 70 Palestinian journalists. Um, the last time I saw it was like 15 or 20 percent of the journalists who have been killed while working in the last, you know, decade or decades were in Gaza since the beginning of October. Um, and uh, and the other kind of striking thing, which which I think is traumatic for everyone involved, is how this is all also occurring in the era of social media. You know, the, the strikes on Al-Shifa Hospital, some of them were uh, sort of um, either recorded on phones or um, streamed live, um, you know, Really gruesome injuries of children, evisceration, um, you know, so many images of parents holding their dead children. Um, you mentioned that the, the, the premature babies who died um, in Al Nasser Hospital, which is next to Al Ransi Hospital, which is one of the pediatric like referral centers for the area. Um, after a forced evacuation of the hospital, um, the, the premature babies were left uh, in the bed for weeks as their life support was disconnected. We now have video of that, and it still, you know, took days and days. If uh, finally it's being covered in the U.S. media, I think there was a Washington Post article, um, and all that in the setting of a unprecedented mass casualty, an unprecedented, um, let's see, having a little bit of, uh, Tariq, you still with us? All right, we're having a. We're having a little bit of um right, you still with us, Tarek? Yes, some of you. Okay. Um I don't know if you caught everything I was saying. I was just kind of bringing us up to date before we even get to, you know, the, the two hundred and fifty or more healthcare workers who have been killed um in Gaza in this time. Anything else you want to say about the unprecedented level of destruction that I've described in the last, you know, couple months in Gaza? Yeah, Simon, I, I think something that's really important to discuss here is what we do, what we do, because I think there are a couple of things here that, that are happening that are relatively unique. Firstly, there is a generation of people like you and me 
who the last time we watched these kinds of massive deaths, you know, uh, I don't know how old you are, but I was, I was 14 when Rwanda was unfolding. Mm. I was, um, what, you know, like 20 when Bosnia was unfolding. By the time that I kind of had caught my senses and been able to get to places, I was 21, 22, 23, but a person at that level isn't necessarily capable. Now I'm, I'm 42. I've reached a point in my career where I can do things. And also, because this has been going on my entire adult life, I'm also in a place where I know what's right and I know what's wrong. I know what works, I know what doesn't, or, or at least I have a good sense and I want to do something. And I've noticed that a lot of people around me are the same. We, we have the capacity. We are a generation of people who, who now are in our adulthood and we have the capacity. We can do things. We can do important things. And we're sitting here, we think, you know, helpless and watching. But look at what we've done so far. We have made it untenable for the Americans to support continued intensive genocide against Palestinians, right? Lloyd Austin is clearly signaling, um, as of uh, yesterday, today, that he thinks Israel is headed towards defeat. And the Americans are clearly signaling that they want this thing tidied up and over soon. Okay? We did that. International opinion did that. Of course, in the States and Canada, we've been way more impotent than our friends in Europe, in, uh, in Africa, in Latin America, etc. But we've accomplished something. Now, we're, we're shifting into finally aid is being allowed in. And so there's a duty upon us because of the failure of our governments to, to fundraise and provide aid. So I think that's the next sort of immediate step. Winter is coming. People are going to need blankets. People are going to need jackets. Just the very simple stuff. However, after all of that, we have to start thinking about the rebuilding of Gaza. Now... This cannot happen in isolation. It's a bunch of white people aren't going to show up to Gaza and rebuild it for the Browns. It's not, it's not the way that it goes. Neither is that what the Palestinians want. They're very capable. But they're going to have some kind of strategy. They're going to have a plan. Some, of the, some parts of that plan will be good. Some parts will be not that good. And it's going to be incumbent on us to join as, as people in solidarity to lift up the parts that are best about that plan and to help gently, as allies, correct the parts that are worst about that plan. Mm -hmm. So, what I don't want from your listeners is to look at this absolute catastrophe and think to themselves, well, what can I do? The fact is that the feeling of powerlessness is one of the many lies that are told to us by the Americans, by the British, by the Israelis, by all of their sort of co-conspirators. It is one of the lies. We have infinite power, and this is the time to start exercising it. For the people who can, they should do things. Go there. Go there. Help. If you can't go there, help somebody go there. If you can't do that, talk about what's happening. If you can't do that, at least educate yourself about what's happening. Mm. These are sort of the, the steps, I guess, backward pyramid, as it were of action priorities. And, you know, um, uh, Tariq, though, 
you know, the, the WHO has stated that there's no hospital in Gaza right now that has the capacity to offer the surgical or critical care that the survivors of this violence require. And I've and one other thing you'd mentioned that there's a generation of um, leadership, medical leadership, which has been killed. I actually, from from what I've been reading, it seems like there are several generations that have been killed right now. Um, you know, former a former dean of the Islamic University of Gaza, as well as I think the current president of the Islamic University of Gaza, have been killed. The um, the director of the Department of Medicine at Al Shifa Hospital, uh, one of the pioneering gastroenterologists, who basically, as I understand it, brought or helped bring endoscopy um, to Gaza. Um, we'd mentioned before um, in a previous episode. Dr. Hamam Alo, who was um, a pioneering nephrologist important in, in, in bringing um, dialysis, as you mentioned, to Gaza so that people didn't have to wait in line um, for uh, renal replacement therapy. Um, not only was he killed, but before he was killed, he had an interview with Democracy Now! where he said, we are being exterminated. And I think that's really what resonated with me and made me realize, um, you know, those posthumously broadcast words that, um, indeed, this was rising to the level of genocide that compels us, I think, uh, on a moral level, um, and, and even, I, I, I think, for healthcare workers especially, um, to feel the burden of, of uh, and the, the urgency of now to stop uh, this genocide. And, you know, last week there was a cessation of hostilities, uh, at least largely, although, you know, there was still a, a physician killed in Janine by Israeli forces. Um, but... Um, and we know that there was also an attack on a bus stop in, in Jerusalem by militants. But um, as the hostilities are are restarting in Gaza, as the targeting is now aiming more on central and southern Gaza uh, and on those healthcare infrastructure there and those healthcare workers, I, I think there's a big urgency of now. And I've been very disappointed at the medical leadership, um, people who are either complacent or don't have the courage to call the genocide what it is and to act in solidarity, you know, with healthcare workers who are being killed in the hospital. Uh, I think that happened at Alda Hospital. Um, some physicians were killed while they were working. We know that um, MSF workers, uh, Doctors Without Borders, were killed while evacuating. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think the only one of the only healthcare um, organizations is the, the – um, in the U.S., at least, the Coalition of Interns and Residents, the Labor Union of Residents, was the first and maybe the only significant healthcare organization to really stand up um, and call for a ceasefire. Um, and, and I know to the point um, there was a video out of pediatricians who were just urging their leadership um, to take this issue seriously, to recognize um, the violence being um, perpetrated against children in Gaza and to call for um, a ceasefire. Anything else that that you want to say that, or, or if we're talking to healthcare workers, you know, what can can uh, we do um, because of our position, you know, to to show solidarity with healthcare workers under attack in Gaza? I I do think that the organizations that are going to say something have already said something. The organizations that are going to wait until December the fourth to say something are the ones where nobody cares what they're going to say anyway. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it, they should do it. But it, it's a clear failure of vision, of leadership, of morality and ethics. We, we right now, all of us in medicine, are going through a deep, profound crisis of morality. Mm. Deep and profound. And the problem is that our leaderships think 
that this is a crisis of public relations. Hmm. Well, what statement should we release? What should it say? Should it condemn Hamas? Should it talk about the Israelis? Should it mention that you know such and such percentage are children? And in so doing, and treating it like a, a public relations crisis, they're missing the point. The point is that for some reason, the entire medical establishment, just like you said, with very, very few exceptions, and almost all the exceptions are generational, they're younger people, right? In Canada, there have been organizations talking about this, and they've almost all been student organizations. Um, there's, because of the way that Canada kind of breaks down, there has been a little bit of talk from some levels, but having said that, majority it's been younger people. And so it's been, it's been um, really enlightening and it tells me that we have so much work to do. The reason why these, these organizations don't say anything is the same reason that they didn't say anything when millions of people were killed in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, it's the same reason that they were more or less inactive on Rwanda. And oh, by the way, all of these organizations had excellent um, statements on Ukraine. That's hmm. perfectly consistent because the organizations are structurally racist. They're structurally incapable of looking at Palestinian life in the same way as they can look at Ukrainian life. And I think that's kind of what you would see. And a hundred years ago, they'd have done the same thing. So I, I think what we have to do uh, on the long term is try to take this talk about EDI. I mean, you know, in my university, oh goodness, we've got all this EDI talk. But it doesn't translate into action, does it? And, Same with you. And that's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. And some people add J, justice. And so, which, you know, Jedi. But regardless of the specific acronym, the, the simple fact is that we are failing to translate those terms. And so what have medical schools done? What has the medical system done, the establishment? They've used these terms to recruit all of these brown people, all these black people, all these people of color, Latinos in the States. We don't have as many Latinos in Canada, but in the States, they're a, a huge part of the diversity. And then what? When those same people that they worked so hard to recruit started to ask for things like, hey, can you please ask for a genocide to stop? They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have to pause. We have to consider the complexity. And so they, they're only at the beginning of the journey. I'd like to say halfway there, but I think bringing people in who are diverse is only the beginning of the journey. You then have to treat them with dignity and honor the, their perspectives. And when they say we should oppose genocide, you should do it. And so I think that's, that's the, the action for us in medicine right now, to look at every organization who either um, was bellicose and, and sounded out against Palestinians, and there's some of those, or that didn't say anything at all, um, and say, okay, well, why did that happen? And how can we fix this? this phenomenon that almost certainly was rooted in, in racism. Hmm. And you know, I, um, when we were talking before, I'd mentioned that it's really generations, and I almost forgot to mention, um, in addition to all those leaders that we talked about, um, there are dozens of trainees, medical, dental students, nursing students, dozens of nurses, pharmacists, techs, uh, midwives, uh, paramedics, uh, 
uh, that have also um, been killed. You know, I, I highlighted some of, of the names and the stories, the obituaries that most resonated with me. Um, in, in the little bit of time that we have left, do you want to pay tribute to any individuals or groups or, that, um, that people should know about in understanding the uh, generational loss of medical leadership in uh, Gaza? Oh, man. Um, okay. I, th I think the problem is that the list is so large, so I'm going to pick one more or less at random who I've been thinking about all day. And that's Dima al-Hajj. Dima was a woman. She's dead now. She's, she was killed. Dima was a woman who was one of the most shy most pleasant human beings I'd ever run into. She worked at the World Health Organization doing this like health analysis type stuff where somehow she was always able to pull magic out of numbers. Whenever I had a question, because you know, I'm, I kind of came out of that evidence-based school, and so I'd have questions about what hospital had this need or that need, she could rattle them off just off the top of her head. She just knew all of it. She was... Um, the first time that I saw her, um, she had sort of like, again, she was quite shy, and I had brought some some food with me, um, which I, I generally did when I went to the WHO office. And uh, after we kind of ate a little bit of the food, Dima brought out out of her out of her drawer some sweets. And what I would later realize that every time I came, she had some sweets in that drawer of hers that she would you know, always offer, um, unless I asked for it, then she'd make me wait and then offer. And she was so sweet and so wonderful. She escaped the, the northern part, Gaza, to go to where the Israelis told her it'd be safe. She took her husband, she took her child, who I believe was seven months old when he was killed, and they went to the south. They ended up holing up with over 50 people in their family and then which was obviously extended family and then because of the destruction of the houses around them they brought in everybody else who they could jam pack into this place in the end about 50 people were killed when this house was struck including Dima including her child dump it dump it okay the thing the thing about Dima, though, is that her father is an incredibly wonderful, super strong, you know, very intelligent human being. And this man, who is so capable and who I had worked with on so many projects because he headed up the International Cooperation Department, he's also out of commission. He can't work. He's another kind of debt. He lost everybody in his family, but because he was a doctor working, he didn't. He wasn't killed. He was on duty. And I asked about him. I asked when we could work. I asked what we could do. And what, what he said, what everybody around him said, is that this man can't stop crying. He can't work. He hasn't showed up to work at, at this point since she was killed because he can't stop crying. All of these stories, all of the people who were killed, all of these people who were killed, they were killed 
um, they, they had stories of their own and we recognize the losses that they had. But sometimes I find I forget the losses around them, mm. the people around them who were also killed, people around them who also killed not in a physical sense but in a spiritual, emotional sense. Mm. What is this man supposed to do the rest of his life? You know, how can he wake up on any given day and not think of Dima? I barely knew her in comparison. I spent hours of my life with her when you sum it all up. And I can't stop thinking about her. And you know, there's like, as you mentioned, there's a list of 250, and I keep thinking I'll read them on the air, but I, I just don't, haven't had the time um, to, to, to pay them all the, the tribute that they deserve. Um, but as we're bumping up against the end of the hour, and one of the other things you'd mentioned about uh, physicians um, and, and sort of, rescue workers, how they're needed in Gaza as soon as it's safe to go. And the other specialty that I keep thinking about is forensic anthropologists. Um, and I've been reaching out to any um, that there's such a need to to document what's been going on, especially with all of the lies and disinformation, um, the same way that has been done in uh, in dictatorships uh, in, you know, Latin America, places like Argentina. Um, uh, you know, so... Um, if anyone knows forensic anthropologists, definitely have them get in touch with me. I'm, I'm looking for any that are interested in, in, in the work that needs to be done in Gaza. Um, anything else uh, to say as we wrap it up uh, here on Trauma Code? Just a reminder that the power is in the people who are here. You know, this, mm -hmm. this tragedy is happening because of failures, and we have to make sure that we don't allow them to repeat. Well, so if you've uh, just been joining us, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on Trauma Code with Dr. Tariq Lubani talking about uh, the genocide basically in Gaza and the crisis, uh, an attack on healthcare workers and healthcare infrastructure that has been restarted over the weekend and the fierce urgency of now to work to end the violence in Gaza right now. So if you appreciate us, we appreciate you. Uh, definitely support WBAI and the legacy uh, with a donation online. Give to WBAI.org or WBAI.org. The pledge line 212-209-2950. You can uh, listen to this on the archives or wherever you get, you, uh, get your podcast trauma code. And you can reach to me on social media trauma code WBAI. Thank you, New York. Good afternoon. 